a blue tick hound bays out there in the fog, running scared and lost because he can't see. No tracks on the ground but the one he's making, and he sniffs in every direction with his cold red rubber nose and picks up no scent but his own fear. Fear burning down into him like steam. It's gonna burn me just that way. Finally telling about all this, about the hospital and her and the guys and about McMurphy. I've been silent so long now it's gonna roar out of me like floodwaters and you think the guy telling this is ranting and raving, my God. You think this is too horrible to have really happened. This is too awful to be the truth. But please, it's still hard for me to have a clear mind thinking on it. But it's the truth, even if it didn't happen. thing on a Monday morning, and Nurse Ratchet has asked that Chief Broom Bromden is shaved before the morning rush. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click donate. In the seminal Oregon novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, author Ken Kesey explores multiple horrific scenes set in the Oregon State Hospital. These images call up a disturbing, confusing place. The thin wires, the machinery in the walls, the ever-present fog. But three real ghastly events have come to represent the horrors committed on patients at the Oregon State Hospital. The first, the eggs, was dealt with in a previous Kick-Ass Oregon History podcast. But the two others, the forced sterilization of patients at the institution, many against their will, and the curious case of the copper cremains, serve as appalling emblems of the state of the Oregon State Hospital, and can hopefully become harbingers of hope for a better future for Oregon's mentally ill. Go. 
It was the big nurse's weekend to work. She didn't want to miss his return. And she decided we'd better have us a meeting to get something settled. At the meeting, she tried once more to bring up her suggestion for a more drastic measure, insisting that the doctor consider such action before it is too late to help the patient. But McMurphy was such a whirligig of winks and yawns and belches while she talked, she finally hushed. And when she did, he gave the doctor and all the patient fits by agreeing with everything she said. You know, she might be right. Doc, look at the good that few measly volts have done me. Maybe if we doubled the charge, I could pick up Channel 8 like Martini. I'm tired of laying in bed hallucinating nothing but Channel 4 with the news and weather. The nurse cleared her throat, trying to regain control of her meeting. I wasn't suggesting we consider more shock, Mr. McMurphy. Ma'am? I was suggesting that we consider an operation. Very simple, really. And we've had a history of past successes, eliminating aggressive tendencies in certain hostile cases. Hostile? Ma'am, I'm as friendly as a pup. I haven't kicked the tar out of an aid in nearly two weeks. There's been no cause to do any cutting now, has there? She held out her smile begging him to see how sympathetic she was. Randall, there's no cutting involved. Besides, he went on, it wouldn't be any use to lop them off. I got another pair in my nightstand. Another pair? One about as big as a baseball, Doc. Mr. McMurphy. Her smile broke like glass when she realized she was being made fun of. But the other one's big enough to be considered normal. One of Oregon's first female doctors, Dr. Bethenia Owens Adair, is an historic figure all Oregonians should know about. She has left a lasting impression on our state as a huge proponent of and advocate for women's suffrage. But today, we will be speaking of another side of the good doctor's legacy. You see, Dr. Owens Adair was also a noted student of the study of eugenics. Eugenics is defined as the applied science or the biosocial movement which advocates the use of practices aimed at improving the genetic composition of a usually human population. You may be familiar with the term when it is attributed to the master race philosophies of Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 1940s. This is not an unfair comparison. Dr. Owens Adair lobbied the Oregon State Legislature to pass her sterilization bill that applied to all, as they were termed at the time, feeble-minded people to prevent the procreation of confirmed criminals, insane persons, idiots, imbeciles, and rapists. Dr. Owen Dare wrote in a 1904 letter to the Oregonian that, The greatest curse of the race comes through our vicious criminal and insane classes. 
These inferior citizens should be dealt with, not by chloroform or strangulation, but by the science of surgery. For if their power to reproduce themselves were rendered null, a tremendous, important step in advance would be taken, not only without injury to life, but often with positive benefit to the victims themselves. In addition to helping thousands of Oregonian women obtain the right to vote, Dr. Owens Adair was most successful in removing thousands of Oregonians' abilities to reproduce, and many against their will. Drive south of Cannon Beach, and you will come across one of the most scenic stretches of Oregon, Oswald West State Park. Named for the 14th governor of the Beaver State, Oz was not only a proponent of preserving Oregon's scenic beaches, he was also a huge supporter of sterilizing the state's criminal and mentally ill. A few short months after taking office, Governor West stated that, As I become more familiar with the conditions at the state penitentiary, the more I am convinced that the plan of sterilization as championed by Dr. Owens Adair is one of great merit. There is a class of criminal insane, moral degenerates and moral perverts who cannot be reformed and who never could be. Governor West signed a sterilization bill into law in 1914. Several bills like this were passed into law, and then often overturned by referendum. But similar sterilization legislation finally went into effect in Oregon in 1923. And our state was not alone. At the time, we were one of 33 states that had similar eugenics laws. The law permitted the sterilization of, quote, persons male or female who are feeble-minded, insane, epileptic, habitual criminals, moral degenerates, and sexual perverts, who are or who are likely to become a menace to society. Two thousand six hundred and fifty Oregonians were sterilized between nineteen twenty one and nineteen eighty three. Sixty five percent of these victims were women. Homosexual men were often the target of this barbaric practice. In Oregon, like other states with eugenics laws, sterilization was often a precondition of being released from prison or from a state mental institution. In 1935, the sterilization procedures were loosened in Oregon, and patient consent was no longer required to perform the operation. A patient could still sue to have the procedure stopped, but many wards of the state and the Oregon State Hospital were unable to look after their own best interest in such a complicated fashion. Of course, other states also practiced forced sterilization on their undesirable population, 
but organs were regarded as particularly draconian. Usually, vasectomies were the norm across the nation. Not in Oregon, baby. Our institutions preferred castrations, with over two-thirds of the men in the state hospital suffering this fate. It is a sickening story. Before 1941, a hundred teenage girls were forcibly sterilized, some simply for misbehaving while they lived at the state training school for delinquent girls. James Taves, a state employee who co-wrote the legislation repealing Oregon's eugenics law in 1983, remembers that while researching the law, he saw records of operations on nine and 11-year-old girls for hygienic reasons. Let's break it down. In a study of the years between 1918 and 1941, 509 sterilizations took place at the Oregon State Hospital. Women made up 59% of the operations. Over 90% of them received salpingectomies. The rest were given ovariectomies. In the 207 men sterilized, over 68% were castrated while the remainder received vasectomies. It's a fascinating story to look into. And while a very few good articles have been written by the Oregonian in the Statesman Journal on the subject, this tragic tale is still not off-told. Perhaps one of the reasons, nearly all of the state's records on the eugenics and sterilization program were shredded, possibly in 1995. The contractor who did the shredding remembers going through the records and having a very real moral quandary. He felt there was evidence of an atrocity in those papers as he fed them into the shredder. Governor Kitzhopper has apologized to the victims of this horrific program. When I'm at the pearly gates, this will be on my sat up in bed and my shadow fell across the body, seeming to cleave it in half between the hips and the shoulders, leaving only a black space. The swelling had gone down enough in the eyes that they were open. They stared into the full light of the moon, open and undreaming, glazed from being open so long without blinking until they were like smudged fuses in a fuse box. I moved to pick up the pillow, and the eyes fastened on the movement and followed me as I stood up and crossed the few feet between the beds. The big, hard body had a tough grip on life. It fought a long time against having it taken away, flailing and thrashing around so much I finally had to lie full length on top of it and scissor the kicking legs with mine while I mashed the pillow into the face. I lay there on top of the body for what seemed like days until the thrashing stopped, until it was still a while 
and then shuddered once and was still again. Then I rolled off. I lifted the pillow and in the moonlight I saw the expression hadn't changed from the blank, dead-end look the least bit, even under suffocation. I took my thumbs and I pushed the lids down and held them till they stayed. Then I lay back on my bed. life at the asylum. Just two weeks after it was founded, the first patient, Mrs. Lizzie Hazelton of Umatilla County, died and was buried. Many families claimed the remains of their relatives, but ultimately, something needed to be done with those bodies that went unclaimed. A need was soon seen for the institution's very own cemetery, so one was established and named, appropriately enough, the Asylum cemetery. By 1913, maintenance of the cemetery had become too much, so the legislature passed Senate Bill 109 that called for the establishment of a crematorium at the asylum and the exhumation of the current bodies and ordering those remains to be incinerated. Exhuming all of the unwanted and unclaimed bodies took almost a year to complete. Fast forward almost 90 years. A most curious sight greeted reporters visiting the Oregon State Hospital in 2005 in an unmarked storeroom in the basement. Right off from the mortuary, the journalists discovered 3,489 shiny metal canisters. They looked like small paint cans, copper, Many had blue and green swaths of color from moisture and oxidation over their dull brown surfaces. Some had fused together. A serial number was pressed onto the top of each can from 01 to 5,118. They were stacked on wooden shelves and had pieces of masking tape affixed. One tattered piece of tape said, Vault number two, shelf number 36, plus four unmarked urns. Most of the cans had a label affixed to their front that listed the name of the deceased patient, but almost all were washed away by water damage, or just simply time. These little copper cans contained the ashes of over 3,000 unclaimed dead Oregonians from the Oregon State Hospital. We'll post a link to a gallery of the cremains on our website, orhistory.com. In 1984, a memorial water feature at the hospital had been dedicated, and the cremains were placed in underground vaults at the site, but the vaults had leaked. The cremains were eventually moved to the basement storage room where they were rediscovered in 2005. Plans are underway for a more permanent, more suitable memorial for these Oregonians' remains. Hundreds of forced sterilizations, 
thousands of corroded cremains and a big old batch of poisoned frozen eggs are hardly happy stories for us to present, dear ass kicker. But I think it's safe to say that Oregon does a shitty job of assisting our mentally ill. Just take a quick walk in downtown Portland and you'll come face to face with our society's abandonment of perhaps our most vulnerable citizens. It's a tragic legacy, one wrought with sadness and pain and abandonment, and it's one that we should be frankly embarrassed to be encumbered with. The Oregon State Hospital, the building in Salem that was designed to help these people, the very same setting of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, has often been a chamber of horrors rather than a safe refuge where Oregonians can get the help that they need. I ran across the grounds in the direction I remembered seeing the dog go, towards the highway. I remember I was taking huge strides as I ran, seeming to stop and float a long way before my next foot struck the earth. I felt like I was flying, free. Nobody bothers coming after an AWOL, I knew, and Scanlon could handle any questions about the dead man. No need to be running like this, but I didn't stop. I ran for miles before I stopped and walked up the embankment onto the highway. I caught a ride with a guy, a Mexican guy, going north in a truck full of sheep and gave him such a good story about me being a professional Indian wrestler that Syndicate had tried to lock up in a nut house that he stopped real quick and gave me a leather jacket to cover my greens and loaned me ten bucks to eat on while I hitchhiked to Canada. I had him write his address down before he drove off and I told him I'd send him the money as soon as I got a little ahead. I might go to Canada eventually. But I think I'll stop along the Columbia on the way. I'd like to check around Portland and Hood River and the Dalles to see if there's any of the guys I used to know back in the village who haven't drunk themselves goofy. I'd like to see what they've been doing since the government tried to buy their right to be Indians. I've even heard that some of the tribe have took to building their old ramshackle wood scaffolding all over that million-dollar hydroelectric dam and are spearing salmon in the spillway. I'd give something to see that. Mostly, I'd just like to look over the country around the gorge again, just to bring some of it clear in my mind again. I've been away a long time. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that today's episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kate Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. 
Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. Follow us on Instagram at Kick-Ass Oregon History. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kick-Ass Oregon History in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at orhistory.com. Just don't flatter yourself about Mr. Kate Crispin's intentions. He only wants to get into your pants so he can sterilize you. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.
Master Doll, are you crazy? ORhistory.com